is based. The title of this sermon is The Destruction of the Temple, reading from Mark 13, 1 through 20. Let's read the scripture. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Jesus replied, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on, on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. We've been working our way through um, the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the four Gospels that begin the New Testament, which tell the story of Jesus, uh, who he is, what he said, how he behaved, how he interacted with people. Um, we've seen Jesus begin his ministry, um, getting baptized by John the Baptist, being tempted in the desert heading to the north of Israel to Galilee where he gathers together disciples and trains them, teaches them, prepares them to be the foundation of the Christian church. And at the crucial moment when they finally recognize that he is the Messiah, that is the one sent by God, Jesus turns and the whole gospel changes as Jesus marches to Jerusalem, marches ultimately to the cross, but first, he goes into Jerusalem three times. The first we celebrate every Palm Sunday when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, is acknowledged by the crowds and the pilgrims with him as the returning king, as the Messiah, returning to Jerusalem, the center of Israel. The second time he goes to Jerusalem, um, Jesus doesn't stand in Jerusalem. It's no longer his home. It's no longer God's home. The second time he goes there, he goes there with authority and he challenges what is happening at the temple. It has been turned into a bazaar, into a marketplace, a place of money changers and commerce, rather than the place of worship. The third time he goes, he is confronted and confronts the leaders of Israel, the high priests, the Sadducees, the aristocratic families, the teachers of the law, the scribes, all the powers of Israel 
concentrated in Jerusalem, who've heard about him, but now have to deal with him when he comes to the very center of Israel at Jerusalem. And so this passage, which is the chapter 13, ends with Jesus, uh, starts with Jesus leaving that temple. He's just been confronted, he's been debating, he's been challenged, he's been teaching, and now he leaves the temple. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. This is the last time that Jesus will be in Jerusalem as a free man. The next time will be after he's betrayed, as he's bound as a prisoner under arrest, destined for the cross. And what a magnificent building it was. In Jesus' time, the, the temple was a magnificent, vast structure. It had a huge portico in the front. That's a supported roof, supported by four rows of 40 columns. It was a massive place. Inside the temple, there were 20 tons of gold inlaid on the walls. It was genuinely one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And yet, when Jesus looks at it, do you see these great buildings? He replied, Jesus, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. This whole magnificent edifice will be destroyed. The temple had been built a thousand years before, conceived by David, the first great king of Israel, and built by his son Solomon. It was the meeting place of God and human beings, heaven and earth coming together. In the center, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, cherubim representing God's presence, his glory there over the Ark. It truly was the center and the basis of everything in Israel. But Israel had not been faithful. The temple had been razed to the ground, rebuilt, occupied, desecrated. Seems like everybody in that narrow strip of land at one point or another took over Israel. The Babylonians invaded, Alexander the Great invaded and brought Greek culture. The Egyptians invaded, the Syrians invaded, and finally the Romans. So the temple, for centuries, had not been the place where God and Israel met. In fact, Ezekiel the prophet has this amazing picture of God rising up, his glory rising up out of the temple and leaving Israel, leaving Jerusalem before uh, Israel is invaded. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will all these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? Peter, James, John, and Andrew, these were the first disciples that Jesus recruited. His inner core, all fishermen, brothers, and he is now bringing them 
to the fulfillment of the purpose for which he called them. The temple is going to pass away, and it's going to be replaced by something else. It no longer serves its purpose. It is no longer doing what it was built originally to do. What was the meaning of the temple? Why did the temple exist? Why was it built? Why did God say to David to build a temple? Well, think of the word religion that we use. Religion is from a Latin word, religare. It means to reconnect or rebind yourself to something. And so religion is how we reconnect to God. That is the purpose of religion. And that was the purpose of the temple. The temple told a story. You know, I was a literature major, and I, uh, I once heard the, the shortest story that's ever been written. There was a group of writers at the beginning of the 20th century, and they had a competition. What is the shortest possible story you can write? And Ernest Hemingway won the competition. His story was six words. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. He won the competition with that. Well, think of the word religion. What do you need in a story? You need characters, you need movement, you need drama. Religion says we need to reconnect with God. The whole human drama is right there in the word. And the significance of the temple was it was the place that God ordered Israel to build for that process of reconnection. It was the center of the biblical story. But it had lost its purpose. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains. Remember, the disciples are asking Jesus about the temple. And Jesus is saying it's going to be destroyed. But something else is going to take its place. What is about to be born? The Christian church. Now people read prophecies like this and speculate about, speculate about all kinds of meanings. But the primary meaning here is Jesus telling the disciples about what's going to happen with the temple and about what's going to replace it, the Christian church. The temple no longer functions as the meeting place, the place of reconnection. Something new is about to be born. And the apostles, they are going to be the foundation of that. You must be on your guard you'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, 
you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Here, verse 9, you must be on your guard. And in verse 5, watch out that no one deceives you. There is the same word used. It's, it's translated in verse 5 as deceives, and then verse 9, on your guard. It's a Greek word, blepo, and it means literally to see or to perceive, but not just to physically see. It means to look under things, to see the truth. It's used again in this chapter in 23 and 33. It's really the theme of everything Jesus is talking about here. And it means to perceive or discern the reality under the surface. To see under what is happening, to see behind what is happening, discern the truth, to look below the surface, behind the facade. And the primary thing that Jesus is doing, he's saying this to his disciples, but clearly we can apply this to more than just the apostles there. He is saying, things are going to happen, and I want you to look below the surface, to recognize what's going to happen to be on guard, not to be deceived. Another interesting word there, by the way, deceived. It is the word plano, where we get our English word planet. To the ancients, the planets were these weird stars that kept moving in the sky. They wandered around. And so Jesus is saying here, don't let surface things, don't let the events that are unfolding deceive you make you wander away from me, make you lose sight of me. Keep track, pay attention, continue to follow the truth. Because the temple is going to be destroyed. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me. You will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. This happened. This happened to all the apostles. They literally were flogged. Nearly all of them were martyred. In fact, that word there, witnesses, that is the word martyria that we get our English word martyr from. Some Christians, most of the disciples, witnessed and remained faithful to Christ even to death. They became the first martyrs. And on account of Christ, they, and even perhaps some of us, will be asked to give testimony, to bear witness, and who knows what's going to happen to us in that process. You know, when I was ordained, there are eight vows when you get ordained. The sixth vow is this. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account? After I made that vow, after I was ordained, Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, he was the one that did the ordination, she came up to me to congratulate me. And she had seen many people get ordained. And she said, no matter how many times she hears it, that promise always gives her a chill. Because some of those ordinands, or some people ordained as pastors, will 
get into a situation or a place or a time when they are required or they will be challenged to witness unto death, to become martyrs because of persecution. I think about that. You know, I made that vow. I think we should all think about that. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. The call is to all Christians, all who would call themselves disciples. Bearing witness to Christ carries a cost, a risk, that you will encounter forces and people and situations where everything will be demanded of you in order to keep that promise. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. That, that verse there, verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations, has caused a lot of controversy in the Christian church. Is Jesus saying that the gospel has to go to every nation in the world before the things that he's describing are going to happen? Missions people oftentimes interpret it that way. And I think that's fair enough. But literally what is being said there is, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. The, the word for nations is the Greek word ethnos. We get our English word ethnic from that. To the Semitic mind, ethnos is the races, the people, the nations that are not Jewish. The heathen world, the Gentiles, the world beyond Israel. And so, is Jesus saying every single nation in the world? Or is he saying the gospel is going to be preached beyond Israel? The gospel is for the Gentiles as well as Israel. Because that actually happened. The temple is destroyed. It happens in 70 AD. But before that time, Jesus, sitting there on that hillside, looking at the temple, the only, he calls himself the king of the kingdom, the foundation of the church, is surrounded by 12 apostles. They become the foundation of the church. After Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter will preach the first sermon in Jerusalem. 3,000 people will become Christians. They begin to spread around the Roman Empire. By the time the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, there are Christians around the entire empire. They start off in the synagogues. They go to every corner of the empire. Recently, this is about three years ago, I went to India. And the Indian church there told me with great delight that they traced their origins back to St. Thomas, one of the disciples, and he went to India in 52 AD. He started the Indian Orthodox Church less than 20 years after Jesus spoke these words. They were very proud of the fact, by the way, that the Christian church went there before it went to England, you know, when they knew I was English. So this happened. The things that Jesus said would happen the church spread, the gospel spread rapidly. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents, 
and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This happened to the disciples. It's happened to Christians through the ages. There was an offense to the gospel that challenges the world. And the spread of the gospel will always face challenge, even from those most intimate to us. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Such a phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus is quoting directly from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the prophet Daniel. Daniel prophesied that during one of the invasions, the temple at Jerusalem would be desecrated. The abomination that, calls, the abomination that causes desolation is an idol that ends worship and sacrifice and offerings at the temple. And this happened in 168 BC. A Persian general who was in Jerusalem had his soldiers invade the temple. They set up an idol to their god, Baal, in the temple, and they sacrificed pigs there, ended the Jewish sacrifice. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing is going to happen. When the temple is destroyed, there will be an end to sacrifice and worship of God, and it will be replaced by idolatry. It will be replaced by, literally, soldiers. Let those in Judea flee. This happened too. In 66 AD, so we're talking about 30 years after Jesus, the Romans, they got fed up with the zealots rebelling. They marched into northern Israel in 66. They marched down through Israel, through the Judean mountains, to Jerusalem. At that time, there had been Christian persecution, and the church had been scattered outside of Jerusalem. And they, they saw the Romans coming, and they fled. Many of them went north of Israel, and Antioch up there became the center of Christianity. It's where Christians were first called Christians. And so most Christians took heed to this. And when, it, when the, uh, the legions got to Jerusalem, it was largely a Jewish city filled with zealots rebelling against Roman rule. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing, and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those days will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Now many theologians, many Christians, many of you listening to that, Days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again will think 
It's got to be bigger than just a Roman invasion. Jesus is talking about battles and events that are bigger than what happened all the way back then. And that's probably true. We'll see next week. Here, Jesus is prophesying the end of the temple. Next week, we'll look. He ends this chapter by talking about his second coming. And there will be battles and terrible events. But when Rome attacked Jerusalem, it was a terrible, terrible event. Josephus, a Roman historian, records it. There was a four-year-long siege. Jerusalem had amazing walls. It was on top of a mountain. And the Romans had to go up, fight their way up, and then build ramps to get over the walls. Four years of siege produced terrible famine, conflict, cannibalism, terrible diseases inside the city. You can find Josephus' account of this online. I read through it this week. It is awful. People tried to escape to find food and were crucified. So many were crucified that the Romans ran out of wood and places. They began to cut the hands of people trying to escape to stop people doing it. They discovered that some people escaping had tried to escape with their own wealth and swallowed gold coins. So they started dismembering and cutting open people that they found. Josephus said that hundreds of thousands of bodies so disfigured the land around that battle that things wouldn't grow afterwards. It was a terrible, terrible event. So how should we think about this? Why is Jesus saying this? What is the point of prophecy? Because that's what this is. I don't know how you feel when you read this, you hear this. I've noticed that prophecy makes people nervous. makes some people crazy. Pastors, churches, whole denominations have gone off the rails, getting obsessed and tangled up with trying to decode biblical prophecy. There was a member of our church in the early days who would come to me after the service every Sunday and try to convince me of his latest theory about when the world was going to end and how it was going to end. and It was space aliens. It was all kind of stuff. And he was obsessed by it. He wouldn't do anything else. I've noticed some people just go off the rails. And rather than focusing on Jesus and worship and making faith and God's presence in their life real, rather than growing as disciples, they become obsessed with trying to figure out the future, trying to know what's going to happen. I remember when I was becoming a Christian in the months before, the idea of prophecy struck me as one of the most amazing things in the Bible. I'd never heard about that before. Those crazy Christians claim to know the future. They claim to know how things end. What chutzpah, what an extraordinary claim. What a radical way to live. As a non-Christian struggling through life, seemingly alone and responsible for everything that was going to happen to me, it felt like cheating. These people claim to know the end. It's like they're taking a test and they've already got the answers. But once I accepted the idea of God, prophecy and miracles did not seem mysterious to me at all. 
God says this through the prophet Isaiah. Remember, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. If you accept the idea of God, then you have to accept the idea of the supernatural. Super means above. You have to accept the idea that there are realities above and outside of nature. Super to nature. And if that is true of God, then all of creation is spread before him from beginning to end. God exists before there is a creation. He exists outside of time and space. So from his perspective, the beginning and the end are all present to him. He can see and know everything that happens. Theologically, that means he's omniscient. Omni means all. He has all knowledge. He sees and knows all things because it's present to him. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere because all of creation is in front of him. And so prophecy is easy for God. Prophecy is the natural place for him to look at everything. The only mystery is why he would share anything at all, because he knows everything. And if you look at this particular prophecy from Jesus, I told you four times, he says, I want you to pay attention. Don't be deceived. Look under things. Be ready. The point of God's prophecy is so that we know that we can trust him. God, when, and Jesus, when they make promises, they're not talking about what they hope will happen. They're not saying we're going to work very, very hard to try to make them happen. God's faithfulness, God's knowledge, is based on the fact that everything is present to him. God's faithfulness, our faith in him, is grounded on the reality of history that he can see, our past, our present, our future. The theologian N.T. Wright has a lovely notion of this. He compares biblical history to a Shakespearean play. Five acts. Acts one and two are short. Creation of a good universe, a good world, heavens and earth, and then a fall. The third act we see in the Old Testament where God begins redemption with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who he renames Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob who become the 12 tribes of Israel and the temple of Jerusalem. The fourth act is now. It begins right here with Jesus. He replaces the temple with himself and his church. And the fifth act were those of the promises. We'll see next week. The end of the age where Jesus returns, the culmination of all things. And so you and I, every one of us, we live in this fourth age, the church age. 
The way I was first shown it, you've probably seen this. Think of two arms. The beginning of time, the end. But here is the realm that Jesus brought into the world. The beginning of the church. This, by the way, goes on and on and on forever. We are in the overlap. The end of the old, the beginning of the new. The new begins with Jesus. It ends when he returns. That's where we live. Every day is a gift. Every day is a choice. Every day is precious. When I was at seminary, I used to go to this local church, and the worship leader always started the service by saying, this is the day the Lord has made. We should rejoice and be glad in it. And I've, I've developed a habit. When I pray, I always have a notebook, and I write TDLM. This is the day the Lord has made. If that's true, what should I do today? How can I rejoice and be glad in this day that has been given to me? I think that's the invitation for all of us. I want to end with one thought for you. At the very center of the Christian church, the church that Jesus comes to bring into the world, is this table. Terrible things are going to happen in this world and in our life. Wonderful things, but also terrible things. Life is a wild ride. It's one way, all the way to the end, no do-overs. Every one of us is on that ride right now. And in the middle of it, Christ has given us a refuge, the Christian church. It's what he built so carefully. And at the center, he put his table. By the way, we're going to look at that. Before he goes to the cross, he explains the table to his disciples. This, the table, is the center of Christian religion. It is where we reconnect, where we rebind ourselves to God. It has many names. Eucharist, Mass, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. They mean the same thing reconnection with God to be in relationship with God afresh forever so how should you think about it we're going to go there this morning a storm is coming storm in your life storms in the world bad stuff is going to happen but Christ built a safe place and he's given you a place at his table at the very center of that refuge. You have a place. It's free, it's always open, and it has your name on it. And all you have to do amid the storms of life is continue to be faithful. We know that God is. We know that Jesus is. All we have to do is honor and put our trust in his faithfulness. Show up. Reconnect. Remind ourselves that we know the end, or at least we know a person who knows the end, and there's nothing to fear. That is the Christian religion. That's why we're here this morning. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have created everything that we need to be safe and happy and flourish in this dark, fallen world. Lord, as we go about our lives, help you remember that every day is precious, a gift from you. That every day we have a choice to build our day and our life on faith in you or faith in other things. Lord, help us to be faithful Christians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.